This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. Medieval pilgrims knew they could be robbed or killed, or worse, they could be corrupted by the vices of the world around them. But these were the dangers of the journey. To find oneself, one had to risk losing oneself. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Shane Legassi talks about medieval travel, especially long-distance travel, and the way it was feared praised, and sometimes treated with suspicion. He also talks about the role the Middle Ages played in creating modern conceptions of travel and travel writing. Legassi is an associate professor of English and comparative literature at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's the author of The Medieval Invention of Travel. Shane Legassi, thank you for talking with me. Um, Thank you. It's great to be here. So I think so many people have these different stereotypes of medieval Europe and probably also have some ideas about what travel in medieval Europe looked like. I was wondering if you could just talk about what were the most common types of travel that people did? Well, the first thing that a lot of people don't realize is just how necessary travel was just for um, you know, everyday human life. Artisans, for example, would often have to travel to other market towns to ply their trades. You know, merchants, of course, both long and short distance, they made their entire trade out of traveling. And you have all kinds of bureaucratic travel, royal travel, ecclesiastical travel. Bishops had to 
always go and supervise um, the churches under their control. You know, Franciscans and Dominican friars made a kind of revolutionary um, rethinking of what it meant to live a religious life by leaving the monastery, right, and going out into the world to preach and convert and all over Europe and the Mediterranean and beyond. So there is, like, when you think about what the most common kind of travel is in the Middle Ages, if you're talking in terms of numbers and the frequency with which it happened, it's, it's really rather banal kinds of travel related to business and bureaucracy and the supervision of churches and things of that kind. If you think about what kinds of extraordinary journeys um, people took most frequently, it was almost certainly pilgrimage. You know, and pilgrimage for good reason has become synonymous with medieval travel because it was the most common reason for someone who would not otherwise have occasion to leave their home to leave their home. And then we have more recently in you know among scholars an interest in the very large numbers of people who traveled to northern Africa and Asia uh, as far as you know well into the Mongol Empire during the Middle Ages. And those those people were likewise they likewise traveled for different reasons. Some were captives that were captured right um, during Mongol invasions and forced to relocate. Some were merchants, uh, you know, Marco Polo being the most famous, uh, but most were actually um, Franciscan and Dominican envoys from the Pope or missionaries of some kind. So you get this very wide range of travel experiences um, in the Middle Ages. One of the things that you talk about is how much medieval travel is associated with danger and adversity, and even make the case that, you know, the word for travel is really linked to the word for travail. And I was wondering if this kind of medieval association between danger and travel is because travel really is super dangerous, or is it because of, you know, links to earlier types of travel literature from the ancient period or from the Gospels? It's both. Um, On the one hand, pre-industrial travel well into the 20th centuries is extraordinarily perilous. Even local journeys can end in maiming, robbery, death. You know, there's a good reason why in 19th century novels, and even in 18th century novels, you see this as well. For example, in Jane Austen, like people plan very local journeys very far in advance because outbreaks of war, for example, that could disrupt travel from England to the continent or travel within the continent were were a common feature of everyday life well into modernity, really. And so things like war, organized bands of robbers, and just kind of natural disasters, things like, you know, sea storms and earthquakes, you see references to these in just about every medieval travel narrative you read. And it, it is a very uncompromising reality that in leaving home in the Middle Ages, you could not take for granted that you would return home alive. So there is a very real truth to that medieval insistence that travel involves not just hard physical labor, which it did, but also the possibility of death. Mm. So there is a material 
basis for that linguistic association and one that you see well into modernity. Now, the second thing I'd say is that that fact, that cultural fact of the physical difficulty, the mental difficulty, the danger involved in travel, that fact is the foundation of a bunch of sort of cultural assumptions about the ennobling potential of travel. And so, you know, Stoic philosophy is one strand of thought that animates this heroic way of understanding travel as a way of overcoming the limitations of your own body, of resisting temptation. And you do see that, you know, in accounts of the travels of the apostles, and you see it before that in the epic journeys of Aeneas and Odysseus, and you see it well into, you know, I would argue on into the cusp of the 20th century, if you read many of the sort of British accounts of the exploration of Africa, the search for the source of the Nile, um, as several scholars have, have observed, the authority of being a geographical adventurer, even in the kind of age of so-called scientific exploration, that kind of travail of travel, the being able to point to the physical toll exacted upon you as an explorer and as an adventurer, it's an important part of your authority, even in kind of an age with more, with a greater insistence uh, that there is just one set of methods for geographical exploration. Yeah, I was really interested in how far back that reaches. My my work is really 19th and 20th century exploration yeah. and travel. And that what you're saying is absolutely correct. There is such a cachet to, to danger that exists in the present. What surprised me was that you also talk about how travel is treated by many people in the Middle Ages with suspicion, that there's a real wariness of travel at the same time that there's prestige with travel. I was wondering if you could talk about why people are so suspicious of it. Well, travel is a very great way to evade detection and to kind of start over anew under another identity to, to engage in subversive activity among new communities that don't know your potential for subverting you know, local custom and law. And travel is disruptive. Any town that is large enough to have an inn or a tavern is going to have in and tavern related disturbances eventually. Travel is also, um, for a lot of medieval moralists, a distraction from, you know, what you really ought to be doing in daily life. And this concern first emerges among a clergy that are that are concerned about monks and nuns, because monks and nuns might have to travel for administrative purposes or for pilgrimage. And there was a real concern that in leaving the monastery, they would rejoin the world they had left behind and taking their oaths and perhaps engage in sorts of pleasures that were unbecoming of someone who had taken those oaths. And so there's, there is a concern that travel, you know, it affords certain sensual pleasures and sexual opportunities that you could not engage in at home as readily without being detected. And so there's a, a huge sort of anti-feminist discourse that that presents women in particular as taking advantage of 
the sacred facade of pilgrimage in order to conduct extramarital affairs and things of that sort. There is a lot of anti-pilgrimage moralizing that complains about the rowdiness of the music that pilgrims would perform together when they were traveling or um, their their propensity to drink together in taverns as much as they uh, end up visiting shrines and churches. And so, so travel becomes suspicious. I, I think this is not an uncommon thing in world historical societies, that the flip side of the sort of exotic aura of the traveler is the aura of danger, right? They're, they're two sides of yeah. the same coin. When I was um, when I was reading this passage in your book, I was thinking, you know, there's a way in which travel, really from the ancient period forward, is a way of finding oneself. That's a yeah. you know the journey inward is such a a major part of that story. But you're talking about the the dangers of losing oneself uh, <laughs> yeah. to worldliness, really, and and it made me think, and I wanted to get your. Uh, impression of this. It made me think actually about Genesis, the first book of the Mm. Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, where really the sins of Adam and Eve are are about seeking knowledge, I guess, about the world over obedience. And it seems like the punishment that they get in part is the punishment of travel. And I I didn't know whether I was just overreading this in terms of its connection to the Middle Ages. Is there a link or is that just a super common trope? Well, there there is a link. That that story is a lens through which medieval people think about travel, but they don't come to the same conclusions, right? So they look to the Adam and Eve story, right? And they don't necessarily think with it and think through it in the exact same ways. And they certainly don't come to the same conclusion about what it means for the tr- the contemporary traveler of their world. And so one common way that, or one uh, relatively common way that, that the, the exile from Eden was used to think about travel was that it was used to sort of stigmatize nomadic people. Mm. So it was because it was depicted as as part of that package of primordial punishments um, to live as a people without a settled home could be viewed by certain intellectuals and writers as a sign of abjection, right? That this is a people that is somehow not favored by God. And you often hear these discourses among both Christian and Muslim writers in the Middle Ages with groups such as the Bedouin in, in, in Egypt in particular. Christian, Jewish, and Muslim travelers to Egypt often comment on the very difficult time the Sultan has sort of bringing bands of nomadic people you know, under his control and sovereignty. I, he never quite managed to do that. So one way that this Genesis story, right, which is a common inheritance to all three religions, is used to think about mobility and what it means to kind of live a life where travel is the norm rather than settled dwelling in one place. Mm-hmm. In the in the course of your book, you also talk about how this begins to give way to a growing prestige for travel, especially long distance travel, either to the Far East or to pilgrimages uh, to the Holy Land. I was wondering if you could talk about that transition. Oh, 
I mean, it's not even really a transition. It's almost as though the second, right, the, the, the idea of the prestigious journey, it grows up to kind of take equal rank, I would say, with this earlier suspicion. And the suspicion never really goes away. But it does become increasingly more socially acceptable, not just to travel, but to write about mm. one's journey. Um, and, and I think I would like to talk about that second part, because that's really sort of at the heart of the answer to the question you've just posed. And that is what I'm really trying to document in my book is the way that all of these new technologies of writing, all of these new genres of literature, all of these previously non-existent reading communities and types of books, so forth and so on, they provide the raw materials out of which people find new ways to talk about and think about the heroism that's possible in travel. Hmm. So, So what I try to do in the book is show how in the Middle Ages, you know, if there is a progress story in this book, and there there is, it's the rise of a literate notion of travel, an idea that reading and writing and the learned exercise of the memory during and after the journey is a form of self-discipline that is, you know, not just equal to the older epic kinds of the the physical exertions of someone like Odysseus, but perhaps even superior to it, because it can engender a written account of the journey of benefit to many people and not just the traveler, him or herself. So really, there is the rise of a kind of sense that travel is justified and that writing about travel is justified. It's intimately tied to the development of new uses for reading and writing and new reading and writing technologies. And that's really what allows that that kind of more permissive and even laudatory understanding of travel to emerge as an alternative to the just straightforward, suspicious, paranoid, and condemnatory um, stance on it. Yeah. One of the things I found super interesting was you say that the pilgrimage narrative itself becomes more empirical. It it focuses more, not, well, I should say it focuses not just on the Holy Land, but increasingly on the journey to the Holy Land itself and to sites along the way. And that seems kind of counterintuitive to me. I wouldn't have expected that because, uh, you know, I mean, after a while, people are like, oh, right, you know, we've seen a hundred of these. And yet they get more elaborate for the journey. Could you talk about that? Yes. And so there's one very, okay, so there are a number of explanations for why this happens. Uh, The first is, is a very easy one to understand. And that is pilgrimage narratives were popular and a lot of people read them. And so pilgrims did travel. So, you know, if you're a pilgrim in the 12th century, you know, going to the Holy Land, for example, you know about maybe, we'll say hypothetically, 10 texts. You can maybe find 10 texts easily at your disposal at your library, uh, whatever library you have access to. By the 15th century, though, you could stand to have several dozen more than that (laughs) easily in the library. And there's this sense that, oh, if I'm going to contribute, right, to this tradition, I might want to do something rather new. And some authors tell us that, that they are 
like attempting to explore aspects of the pilgrimage that previous authors have not. Um, And in the book, I devote quite a bit of attention to one late 15th century pilgrim named Felix Fabry, who was a Dominican. He's a Dominican friar from Ulm. And he went on one pilgrimage and he he just didn't remember anything. Um, and he was really disappointed that when he got back, he couldn't distinguish in his memory one site from the other. So he, <laughs> he, go, he went on an entire second pilgrimage, which was a little bit potentially controversial because, you know, that kind of wanderlust was regarded with suspicion for some of the reasons we've already talked about. But in the second, before he went out on the second journey, he just amassed this huge corpus of text. He just read every possible thing he could um, for centuries of travel to Jerusalem and, you know, the area around it. And he was very mindful of the history, right, his place within it. And he's really not the first. He was reading a lot of authors who themselves already in the 1200s are mindful of that thing. But he sort of, he represents sort of the apex of this kind of self-awareness, this desire to to kind of carve out a new niche in a tradition of travel writing. So that's one, that's the first. I mean, the second one, which I think is really interesting, underappreciated, is the rise of certain kinds of note-taking tablets and paper diaries. Mm. And we take these things maybe too much for granted. Um, we will. We certainly take paper for granted now, um, but it was a relatively new arrival on the scene in Europe, you know, in the in the 13th century, and it, it was even, you know, it it starts off being produced in in certain places in Spain and southern Italy, and then it has a rather slow spread, actually, uh, surprisingly so. Um, but one thing that paper makes possible is the existence of pre-bound notebooks. And so we know that pilgrims, for example, who would go to the Holy Land would often buy their paper in Venice. So Venice, um, you know, they'd go to a stationer in Venice and stock up on paper there. They also had various kinds of note-taking tablets. Some had sort of gypsum surfaces that they could use their stylus to record notes on and then transfer those notes to a notebook and then erase the tablet and use it over again. Others used wax tablets, which was a kind of much older technology. But but the thing that I think is easy to to kind of misunderstand, right? Or it's it's sort of easy to think about technology in general and certainly writing technologies as just kind of passive servants, right, to the mind. But when I look at, you know, the kind of development of travel writing in the Middle Ages, when I look, for example, at travelers who are traveling in the desert, what I see is that, no, actually, a notebook becomes a kind of way to, or a tablet becomes a way to kind of expand the potential to see things Hmm. that you couldn't otherwise see. And so, you know, several travelers who talk about writing daily in their tablets and transferring it to their notebooks during desert travel, they'll tell us, oh, here's this or that oasis town. And they have like a keener sense of landmarks in yeah. a desert that, that seems landmark-less. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, so I think technology and the rise of new forms of literacy, right? The habit of recording things in accounting books, which becomes a habit of recording things in personal diaries, 
this technological angle and also just the very simple literary historical explanation of travelers being aware that they're entering into a tradition. These are, I think, the three reasons or these are the three main causes for that increased interest in in parts of the pilgrimage that are not Jerusalem's. Yeah. One of the people that you talk about, probably, you know, one of the most famous um, Renaissance travelers and writers is Petrarch, the um, Italian Renaissance poet seen as uh, one of the most important early humanists. And he traveled for pleasure and and wrote about it. And at times, I think we, we talk about uh, him with a very modern sensibility. But you talk about how concerned he was with the ethics of travel. Could you talk about that? Yes. And, and in some ways, um, what I'm trying to do in devoting a chapter to Petrarch is to actually show how medieval he is. Yeah. And I'll just say some of my best friends are early modernists, so <laughs> I have no axe to grind against their field. But it is the case that arguments about rupture in terms of ideas of travel between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance are really dramatically exaggerated. And one of the surprising things that I learned <laughs> was, was the extent of continuity. And, and so someone like Petrarch, one understands why he's classed on the size, side of the Renaissance when you're talking about travel writing, because you know his interest in recovering and thinking through and writing in imitation of the works of Roman literature from antiquity, all, that whole project it just shapes his subjectivity as a traveler to such a degree that he is distinct among other 14th century travel writers. But that said, in the 14th century, there is no norm among travel writers. So every travel writer is distinct. Um, And several of those travel writers, right, they end, uh, you know, John Mandeville, you know, the famous kind of literary hoax travel writer of the period, he ends up sort of perpetuating and developing other travel writing conventions that will be picked up in the early modern period too. And we class him as medieval. So the first, you know, I think the first thing that I would want to say about Petrarch and his concern about the ethics of travel is that everyone in the Middle Ages is concerned with the ethics of travel and there is no norm, right? Uh, You know, in the Middle Ages, really. And so, so I kind of went in assuming a period divide and gradually really realized that we misunderstand quite a lot about travel in both periods in sort of presuming it ahead of time. And with that said, right, like, uh, I know like Petrarch, Petrarch is a travel skeptic, right? He, which makes him, I would argue rather medieval yeah. that, that he does have this group of letters that he writes actually in middle age. And he might even go so far as to manufacture them after the fact for um, this kind of letter anthology that he collects. Um, but they tell of a story of sort of a useful journey um, through Northern Europe. And there's like a real kind of irony in the way that he treats his own youthful journey. And by the end of that cycle of letters, you start to get the sense of someone 
who sees travel for educational sake and travel for pleasure as a kind of youthful indiscretion, right? It's yeah, something yeah. you do when you're young and crazy. And that's actually sometimes the way he talked about his own vernacular poetry when he was writing you know, Italian verse in his youth. And even though right, he revised his Italian poetry throughout the rest of his life, that was always an important part of his public persona that, oh yes, as a youth, I, I kind of engaged in this less noble form of literary writing. And, and he, he does something very similar with travel. He treats it as something that distracts him from the more important labors of scholarship and of you know, self-discipline. Yeah. I was actually thinking, um, reading the Petrarch part of your book that, it rem- you know, I don't know Petrarch that well. The The part that I know is his ascent or supposed ascent of Mount Ventoux yeah. in uh, 1336. And, you know, he climbs this mountain. And I actually was in France a little while ago and and went up Ventoux. And damn, it's wow. pretty, it is a pretty... <laughs> Well, no, I drove up. Oh, that's not the same, is it? (laughs) I didn't even bike up. it. I mean, there's actually people who bike up it. Um, But so much of what I kind of saw in that uh, description was, you know, he does have at points this really almost modern aesthetic appreciation of the climb and the arduousness of it. But then at the top, he like pulls out Augustine's confessions and basically says, oh yeah, this is totally folly to get like really into the scene. I should be directing my attention inward, you know? Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, that is a serious buzzkill and very anti-modern right there. You know, at least that's how I remember it. But it made me think about, and I wanted to get your impression of this, some of the old discussions about medieval literature focused a lot upon this kind of development of self-awareness or the creation of the individual. And I was wondering if, if you see your work connecting to that old debate about, uh, you know, individuality in, in writing in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it, it, it does. And because I wanted to highlight the extent to which the medieval Renaissance divide had been exaggerated, I do think that my book does emphasize the way that travel writing and travel become understood in the Middle Ages, like very firmly in the Middle Ages, as a technique of self-fashioning and of individual uh, self-presentation. But I would I would add to that, the thing I'm really sort of interested in is not necessarily individualism or individuality, but subjectivity, which is not internal, right? To like with the way I understand subjectivity, right? You are perhaps an embodied individual in the world, but you are in a world and you're situated within a community. You're situated within a climate and, and a natural ecology. And, you know, you, you're surrounded by the objects of your home and your, the objects of your journey, the other living organisms. And, and so subjectivity is not just about you know, what's going on in your own mind or in your own body, but it's also about your interactions with the rest of the world. And Mm. although I often emphasize this element of self-fashioning, I think underneath most of the discussions of the works I write about is is a concern about how writing 
becomes a way of reimagining how travel can help you rethink who you are as a subject, as a person mm. embedded within a larger community, to imagine yourself within a community that you couldn't have conceived of before you travel, to imagine yourself perhaps differently as a human in relationship to the desert <laughs> experience. Yeah. So, mm. so it does part, I mean, it is sort of throwing down a little bit of a gauntlet, right? Uh, for the, the kind of argument that self-fashioning and is something of the Renaissance, right? But of course, right, that's a very old argument um, among medievalists. You, Several medievalists have made these arguments, particularly about chivalric romance, mm -hmm. the kind of rise of the of individual subjectivity in that and in troubadour lyrics. So that in itself is not a very new argument, but it ends up being one that we just have to keep repeating because there's something so appealing about the dogmatic assertion that that individuality arises with the Renaissance. Yeah, yeah. Before I let you go, I have to ask you, I know that you're working on a project that is actually about a modern subject. You're looking at modern film and yeah. monsters, particularly flies as yes. they exist in film. I was wondering if well, you could talk about what you're interested here. Yeah, well, what I'm uh, so I'm writing a book now called Hollywood Horror and the Gothic Fly. And the argument of that book is that every time you sort of see a house fly projected onto the screen at the cinema, you're getting imported into the film several philosophical, scientific, it's theological, cosmological concerns that date back to antiquity. Right? So, so, the, so the argument is that, that the audiovisual motif of the fly in cinema, thanks to the mediation of painting, right? And painting actually provides cinema with some of the visual conventions with which it's going to depict the housefly. Thanks to the mediation of painting, which is itself informed by several theological and cosmological controversies about the fly, <laughs> mm -hmm. you have imported into that motif in cinema all kinds of ideologies that often the filmmakers themselves are not aware of. However, horror filmmakers tend to be aware of them because horror is one of the few cinematic genres that's consistently interested in a larger cosmological framework for its narrative. It doesn't confine itself to the kinds of domestic realism that, that huh, yeah. So interesting. And so that, that book is really an attempt to do a kind of cinema studies that's also a genealogy of the history of painting and also the history of science and theology. Yeah, I was thinking, I was wondering if, you know, I had uh, Sureka Davis on a while back to talk about her book on uh, ethnography, medieval ethnography, early yeah. modern ethnography and maps. And um, so she's looking at, at monsters, you know, she's looking at the monsters on the map and talking about how they were taken quite seriously, that these visual representations actually a really important way in which people tried to figure out how nature worked. So I was just wondering if there were links uh, between the kind of uh, voyages and this, you know, the empiricism that you talk about with the medieval voyage and the, the flies, but you say there is, there's a language that connects the two. 
Well, there there is. So, um, you know, if you if you look at the life of of Giotto and Vasari's, um, you know, book of the, the the lives of the painters, he's not he doesn't invent this anecdote, but he popularizes it. He says Giotto was sort of the first modern painter, and he was modern because he depicted nature so accurately that he deceived the human eye, and the sort of most humorous anecdote that Vasari uses uh, in proving this argument is one in which Giotto's master Cimabui like goes away to lunch. And while he's away at lunch, Giotto paints a fly on the nose of a figure that his master has just painted. And when his master returns from lunch, um, Cimabui tries to brush the fly off the nose of his painting. And, yeah. and, and the implication being right that in that moment, the disciple surpasses the master. Uh, and it, it, and it, this is very typical in the way that subsequent art theory and subsequent painters think about what it means to represent nature, to be able to capture the smallest and least significant and most meddlesome of creatures vividly and convincingly in painting. The fly is to be able to capture nature itself. And Mm -hmm. so there is an argument about, uh, I mean, there there are these ideas of, of empiricism, but they're interestingly figured through illusionism. And that's really one of the most interesting tensions and the one that I found most productive in thinking about the various ways that flies enter onto the scene in cinema, where they they actually often enter accidentally, especially if you're not in a horror film. And the kind of questions that raises about human intentionality uh, and that it raises about authorial intent, if you're talking about the director, are just rather fascinating. And they all sort of can be tied back to this tension, I think, between empiricism and illusionism in art theory, right, in art criticism. Hmm. Shane Legassi, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at Time to Eat the Dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.